0: Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Mark Guarino. Mark covers national news and culture from Chicago for The Washington Post, ABC News, The New York Times, and other media outlets. His latest book is Country and Midwestern, Chicago and the History of Country Music and the Folk Revival, and is published by University of Chicago Press. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. So just to get started, can you briefly share with us what your book is about? sure so the book um covers sort of this um uh almost 100 year history of country music and folk music in chicago going starting with uh 1924 with the opening of the 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 barn dance a radio program on wls in april 1924 and going past um well past 2000 um and it really kind of delves into more or less what's been kind of a hidden history of Chicago of these really important strains of music that have um, not just continued through Chicago's history, but more or less flourish. And um, the book looks into all the different scenes of during that time period and important artists and also a lot of artists that have been lost to time.
0: So when I saw this book come out and read it, I was incredibly fascinated with how country music essentially formed, you know, In Chicago as an epicenter when a lot of people think of Nashville so how exactly did country music get started in Chicago and how did Nashville end up becoming the home of it eventually
1: sure at that period of time it really is focused the conversation is going to be really focused on the 1920s um, when uh, a lot of recording studios all the major labels had recording studios in downtown Chicago And we're recording all sorts of artists, not just um, country people, but jazz and and blues and orchestras, dance orchestras, anything they can get on, uh, they could record because the recording industry was really exploding at that time in the 1920s. We're talking about the jazz age. And so um, music was very, very important. um, And it was being introduced into people's homes, really in the kind of the earliest segments. At the same time, radio was taking off like crazy and all these radio stations were opening up in downtown Chicago and one of them was WLS which was called uh, the world's largest store because uh Sears Roebuck and company uh was based here and that was their um, outlet to get into uh, people's homes um across rural America and uh and because of WLS since that which launched in April uh 2024 they were really looking for content. They didn't really know what to um, put on the air. There was kind of a struggle to figure out what people wanted to listen to. So you had this medium, but they didn't have the message. And in late in the month, um, they decided to put some fiddlers on on a Saturday night, and it was a really big hit. And what developed out of that was a program called The Barn Dance, which was a several-hour-long show on Saturday nights, <clears throat> which was really the first presentation of what would later be called country music. Um, It was music really from music and songs and performers from the Midland South who came to Chicago and brought their songs with them and brought their instruments and brought their stories with them. And it was sort of packaged into this real family-friendly show. Um, And uh, it was really the first time the music really kind of stood up on its own um, outside of these rural pockets of the south and and uh stood up to sort of be presented to um the rest of the country really um and uh the the there's the the program was incredibly successful um out of that i mean they it was tough to get tickets uh all the performers would go tour outside of saturdays to small towns throughout the country there were Hollywood movies made out of um, the barn dance cast. Um, and then, of course, the recording, some of the earliest country stars um, who uh, sold millions of records came out of the barn dance. So you really had kind of a star making machinery coming out of that program. The relevance of that program lasted about 20 years um, because it had a national sponsor. So that it ended up going coast to coast, which made it even bigger. But it also kind of made the music a little bit more irrelevant because the sponsor and the eventual owner who bought it from Sears bought the station from Sears. They didn't really like, uh, um, they wanted to keep the music. They wanted to uh, smooth out the rough edges, and so the music, um, uh, didn't really evolve. Um, uh, didn't have a chance to evolve more or less. Um, after World War II. The exact same time after World War II, Nashville really started to emerge as a industry town. And so by the 50s, all of the recording studios, the publishing houses had gone in. And it was really you. you it's, it was very early Nashville um, establishing itself as Music City, um, as 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 sort of the the the, the industry network of country music. Because country music had become a commercial uh, force to be reckoned with, and so the industry, like mechanism or ecosystem around it, had to be formed, and so it was formed in Nashville, and so it was really that time that the the music as an you know industrial force or a force in the industry. stopped really becoming uh, relevant in Chicago, and, and and Nashville kind of took it up after that.
0: I know there's some um, social and cultural reasons why country music became a force in Chicago, and we'll talk about some of those later, but I really wanted to, to uh, begin the conversation on, on Barn Dance, which you brought up, because that was a really fascinating program to read about, and you talk about a guy named William Bradley Kincaid who made his radio debut uh, on Barn Dance, and you say about him that he like the his success came from building a template that created a personal relationship between his performance and the fans. And I thought that was just an incredible dynamic. Could you tell us more about him?
1: Sure. So he was someone who came to school, came to uh Chicago to go to school. He came from Appalachia, the heart of Appalachia. And he happened to be in Chicago and he he was a singer. Um, and so he sang in some choral groups and he auditioned for the um for the barn dance and he won and um but the bradley kincaid that if you just google his name you'll see a lot of photos of him kind of an outdoor wear and or maybe a cowboy hat and uh, um and that really kind of wasn't inherently him he created this image that um listeners felt comfortable with of someone who's seen those songs who bradley kincaid really was was he was an early folklorist and a lot of these people that's really what they were they were people who collected songs it is such a quaint idea today in 2023 or 2024 to think about uh, song collecting but really that was the really that was the way that these songs survived was through people like Bradley Kincaid because what he did was he went back to where he grew up went to people he knew went to community halls churches and 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 wrote down the songs that people were passing around and singing and, and then he started publishing them um, as songbooks um from a publisher in chicago so now you don't have to live in appalachia to learn these songs and these songs really really have survived because of the efforts of people not just him but there were other people as well um so he was kind of this um he, he he was someone who really understood that um that there was a, number one clearly a commercial potential people really were interested in this music um and two there's a real um importance into pr- protecting and saving it as well um he was really the first country music star to um sell a million copies of his record he there's a song called barbara allen That was his song that he really popularized. And that song is sung today Um, uh, is a very popular song in the folk music world. So he was really someone who was very, very pivotal. Kind of his name is more or less kind of forgotten to time, um, because after by the time that the country country music really kind of took off decades later, he was older. He was kind of out of it in a way. Um, so he, he, he was really an early, um, influence on, on the music, uh, for sure.
0: The image he brought of Cowboys in Chicago was kind of really interesting to me. And I really was fascinated when I was reading your book that Cowboys in Chicago could be traced back to the 1890s, which, um, you know, I, I I don't see a lot of that history now. and, And thankfully this book is out to expand upon that, um, But you write that when cowgirls started to appear, they were mostly treated as a comic foil until a cowgirl named Patsy Montana came along and changed that. And I really liked reading about her. Uh, Could you tell us more about Patsy Montana?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, she's one of the really very fun um, boy uh, characters in this book because um, she lived a long life. And so she lived really through the uh, uh, rock and roll era. And so she was performing on like Lincoln Avenue in the 70s to people who grew up and heard about her because she was being rediscovered um, way way back when. So, you know, Patsy, Patsy Montana was um, not from Montana. She was from Arkansas and she came from a very big family and she had moved to California with some of her brothers looking for work and that's the theme of this book you know the music really kind of came out of just people really looking for opportunity because a lot of these people were very poor and who were growing up in the great depression and um and so we're just kind of on the prowl looking for op- any kind of opportunities and so She was on the radio in california for for a bit um and um and that's where she kind of earned the name patsy montana her stage name and i think she was part of a group called the montana girls where she dressed up in kind of this cowgirl outfit and uh, and played state fairs and rodeos and that kind of thing um that group ended and she moved back to Arkansas and um one of the great stories in this book is how she got to Chicago the 1933 World's Fair um in Chicago and her family uh, like a lot of farm families moved came up for that fair um to compete and they competed into for a monster watermelon, uh, contest. And so she and her brothers brought up this monster water watermelon, uh, to get, um, judged at the, uh, world's fair. But her mother had, um, had written to the WLS and told them that her she felt her daughter really had talent and had already had some radio work in California. And so they told her to stop by the station to say hello. She did that And um, she auditioned and she stayed in Chicago and and she joined a group called the Prairie Ramblers. Um, And uh, so she was a woman within a context of a male group, but eventually she broke out of that. Um, She had a very powerful personality and uh audiences really responded to her um her song that that really kind of the reason we actually do remember her today is that she had a song called i want to be a cowboy sweetheart and um and that song is um she wrote the song and uh which also was unique so she was a songwriter and she is actually not really a love letter to a man talk, even though the title suggests that it's really about, actually I, I, it's a love letter to wanting to be, you know, beneath the open skies, to be free, to be independent, to be away from the city lights. And, um, it was, uh, uh, that song has survived like Barbara Allen, but in a more commercial sense. Um, a lot of people record that song and one of the oddities that when I was happened to be writing of this, this book was that Cindy Lauper had, had recorded a country record during the time when I was writing it. And on that record was, I want to be cowboy sweetheart. So I interviewed Cindy Lauper and, um, and she talked about um, how that song was important because um she never mentions the man in the story and it kind of is this funny story about a very early funny story about, um, a woman's independence and, you know, um, at a time where you just didn't find a lot of song material about that. So, um, she recorded a lot of other kind of hits. And, um, so she was really an early country music star among this group that I'd kind of talked about before that, um, that kind of set the tone for artists who really kind of came much later. I really appreciate you sharing
0: all that with me. And because it was a really fascinating opening and um, just incredible to learn about the these people and just the power of the songs they were writing. You mentioned Cyndi Lauper covering that. And it really speaks to not just the messaging, but just what makes a truly good song that transcends genres. And I just felt that was really, really, really great. Thank um, you. So with that, I just wanna jump ahead a few decades because one thing I really enjoyed about your book was besides profiling the these artists and their songs, you talk a lot about the conditions in which you know they lived and worked in. And so jumping to the 1950s, there was an economic boom that had the consequence of displacing a lot of working poor, and there was a lot of urban renewal projects that continued to threaten their livelihoods. Could you tell us more about those renewal projects and the effects they had on their communities?
1: sure so the um urban renewal was happening across the country in all big cities um the kind of the automobile had uh become you know the idea that people were now working downtown in giant office towers that was a new thing and so uh, cities were kind of transforming themselves to allow for something they never had before commuters and um and so they had to make way for all these cars that were commuting down highways were being built um and people started and they wanted people to live in these downtowns as well and so um these cities were modernizing and for the kind of the, the new era very different from the world war ii area and this is happening in the 60s um and Chicago was really kind of a, a made urban renewals happening in a very big way. So you had, um, the UIC campus being built west of downtown, you know, all these kind of amenities happening downtown. And of course the big skyscrapers that were starting to be much taller than the ones that were built in the 1920s. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> Mayor Richard Daly really understood that for Chicago to be, um, a world-class city, it had to appeal to suburbanites to kind of come move back into the city. Um, It had to kind of clean up the city in many ways. And for that meant um, on the North side of Chicago was very blighted and also it was rural dominated by um, ethnic groups um, that, uh, you know, kind of took hold a lot of these neighborhoods. One neighborhood was Uptown and Uptown was built really, uh, as a playground for the wealthy during the age I was just talking about in the 1920s, um, and, uh, during the jazz age, and it was really a brief jazz age, of course, um, because of the Great Depression that followed, but, um, the uh, what was left behind from that time were these beautiful apartment buildings, beautiful grand theaters of uptown, many of whom are still standing uh, clubs and uh, that kind of thing. So once the times, tur- the tides turned, um, you had all this great infrastructure, but uh, there was it kind of fell into the hands of slumlords. At the same time, you had a second um migration coming up of white southerners once again looking for work because um agriculture the agricultural south that way of life was dying um and there weren't the opportunities for um people who uh uh were growing families um and so there were all these factories up here uh, not just the steel mills but also um kind of low level factories, even in the north side of Chicago, and then the sub suburbs, which were developing on the collar of Chicago, places like Morn Grove and Skokie and further and further out. Um, So uh, you had this massive influx of white southerners coming up, and most of them settled on the north side, and a lot of them settled, um, settled in Uptown because a lot of people they knew lived there and was sort of compounding itself. Um, these hotels were, um, built into smaller and smaller units and, um, poverty, uh, settled in. People didn't have a lot of money. The conditions were very different than they were used to. It was cold. Um, it was violent and, uh, there's a lot of desperation in the street. So, uh, at the same time, people brought up their culture, um, the music you heard music in a lot of these bars um there were musicians here there's also a support structure kind of being built for these people to make them feel at home and to at least try to kind of have them integrate within the wider chicago so while that's happening um they're kind of ripe for uh antagonism from the city from major media outlets like the chicago tribune people saw them just as hillbillies and uh so there was a real clash um that lasted for quite a long time um decades uh between um the people who really settled into these neighborhoods and now it was with their home they some some people had who later became in their 20s that's the only home they knew they came up as babies um and so there was a real um antagonism between Uh, The people who live there, the Chicago Police, the City Hall, that really wanted these people gone because they wanted to redevelop Uptown. Uh, They wanted to put in uh, Truman College, which is there right now. Um, And, uh, and, you know, my book kind of tells that story, but also it talks about them, you know, it really kind of does it through the filter of music and poetry, because that's really, those are the, art forms that kind of came out of the struggle.
0: Yeah, I really thought that was fascinating because um, you know, I, I live close to uptown and I'm able to see a lot of these buildings and the history, it just touches me personally in a lot of ways. And I appreciate you touching upon how media and the local government was antagonizing these communities. Um you also say that there was a there was a lot of social service agencies that were working with these communities to kind of help get them settled. And reading through it, it was really alarming to see how a lot of the same issues are still continuing today on, on different scales. And so I just wanted to get your perspective, you know, as a journalist yourself, you know, like that media relationship and the plight of the local communities and um, how these social service agencies really came to uh, step in.
1: Sure. Um well, you know, I think with the migrant situation, you're seeing the people who are really stepping up are the churches and um, and just everyday volunteers. And the ones who are really the ones collecting the clothes and collecting the the basic needs, so providing showers are the churches of all denominations, um, not just in the city of Chicago, but in the suburbs as well. And and the massive amount of volunteer effort they the churches really did mobilize in a way or are and are mobilizing in a way they're fast they're swift they have a network of volunteers and people are committed to helping the the, the migrant groups who are kind of coming here not just kind of get on their way but just survive you know in this horrible winter that they've that they're in and that's all it, while city government kind of just in a way spins its wheels and and there's we've seen the frustration with the city of chicago because of that they the the, the, the the city that has the greatest amount of resources seems to be moving the slowest that's very true in this situation as well where um uh these social service organizations kind of coming together to understand because there's an understanding there that these aren't just people who um okay they're showing up for jobs and we need to help them get jobs that these are people who are showing up that they come from a different culture and so there are inherently a lot of um interesting things that come out of that when you come from a different culture and you're plopped into a culture that you don't know understand whatsoever and and if we can address some of those things it's going to make this transition a lot easier. It's not just, you know, handing them a hot cup of coffee and telling them where a job is. It's to kind of accommodate them and to make ease the transition. So then they become a Chicagoan. Um, and that's what really a lot of the social organizations did, um, that they, uh, created community halls for them to play music. They, um, there was actually organizations that helped miners with black lung disease, people who are mining their entire life and then coming up here for work, but had a lot of significant health problems. There was organizations here that were targeted just for those miners. The Old Town School of Folk Music um, set up a remote um, uh, location in Uptown to hand out guitars, to provide space for people to play their music. Because that was important to those people—that um, that that music was played at home and it it was it brought their brought small rural communities together and now they're in a place that isn't small or rural um, and so how do they kind of recreate that in this big and urban environment and so the social services really tailored their services to the people that they were face to face with and they seem to understand those people and i think that's similar to what um at least what i know of and have read and have been told of the more successful outreaches to the migrants is that you know they're reaching out to people who understand spanish who understand um the journey that these people had made like who they are behind who who they are behind their faces and the why, you know, and really kind of addressing why they're here and, and their efforts and not judging them. And I think that that's maybe the connective thread between, um, these two groups. And, and also I think the idea of not judging them, that was a big deal because in, in in uptown or in Chicago at that time, there was a lot of judging, uh, as you know, my book kind of gets into, really how these people in the press were treated like jokes. they were treated like you know they were blamed by, for all the crime and and they were useful scapegoats and because they were different because they sounded there they had a twang in their voice and they were poor. Um, so they looked and sounded different and um, and so that's kind of the connective thread probably between then and now
0: because that's what made this book really fascinating to me because and with with when you're reading when you're reading books about history it's you know it, for me it's not enough to know it just about like, the figures and all that and like oh you get these little anecdotes and tidbits about you know these musicians playing a long time ago but the environment in which they live and to see parallels you know that's one of the big important parts of these kind of untold histories is to see how these things kind of mirror our lives and i and that was a really great angle to the book and uh, i do want to commend you for that um because that um was i i think that w- what's helped made it a lot more essential as well um so with that i, I felt it was important to talk about that but i want to get back to the music now um so you met you were, we were talking about uptown um which had a lot of music coming in from appalachia And besides clubs and bars, people could get together to jam at neighborhood community centers or even in other people's homes. And you write in your book that the informality of the scene made it easy for younger musicians to hunt down older ones to learn directly from the source. And that's something that is incredibly important because while we have archival and preservation services now, I mean, to have actually that kind of personal connection is remarkable. And I... want to know if you can give us some examples of that.
1: Sure. Um, There's a lot of examples, um, and I think that kind of the overall um, what was going on during that time was that there was sort of this generational handoff, um, which I think was one of the most important generational handoffs um, of the last 20 or of the last uh, 100 years. Because, as I was mentioning with urban renewal, um, modern life was changing very rapidly. And um, and so now you're starting to have kids growing up in areas like the suburbs and and not really um, kind of areas that are being created outside of city spaces, even rural. This kind of middle space that's not rural or citified. And they're starting not to really have a culture of their own. That's kind of a new thing um, that they're kind of getting their culture from television. And so uh, modern media is kind of entering the world. And, and so, um, and so you're having people who are learning about something that would normally touch them if it was in front of them, but they're learning about it on records and on television. But they have no way to kind of l- learn about it from the source unless they go find the source and and so during this time uh in the 1950s and the 60s i guess you know uh, as well um <coughs> you have this whole generation of kids more or less kind of like taking it upon themselves to go to go find the source and um and not just in Chicago, this is happening a lot of other places, but the stories in Chicago are kind of incredible. Um, I mean, in in 1961, the University of Chicago Folk Festival started in February. It's happening again this February. Um, and that was really one of the first folk festivals where you had college students interacting with musicians who had recorded decades earlier in the 20s or 30s. And we're just regular people. They just recorded music, but they, you know, were not recording stars because that concept wasn't really around. And so their music in the 1950s was being repackaged and resold to audiences and heard, and and that music was heard for the first time. And so young people who were maybe not believe it or not, there were some young people who weren't really into rock and roll, Um, and so we're discovering kind of this old blues or bluegrass music, string music, and getting really excited about it. They were jumping in cars and going down to the south and knocking on doors or corresponding with people who were down south to try to kind of bring them to Chicago to play this festival and that's kind of incredible i mean if you think about like college students today are there going to be college students who are going to make that kind of effort to um to really go into a place that they have no experience being may not even be welcome completely it's like two aliens meeting on a distant planet you know it's it's so improbable and, and I, I think it's, you know, it's easy for us now to jump in a car and go drive down somewhere in the South. Not a big deal. But back in 1960, it was a very big deal, especially when you're creating, creating, crossing racial barriers as well, if you add, even throw that in the mix. And so these were very, very adventuresome people um, who were doing that on both sides because you had someone kind of a farmer's working in her house and I knock on the door and there's two university Chicago students there really excited to meet them um uh and so and not only excited to meet them wanting to bring them up to this to Chicago for the first time and so that is a really kind of a beautiful those stories are really really beautiful in that way and I think can't be ever replicated again um Within Chicago there's a lot of stories like that too because you had a lot of um musicians who were still alive today who are um, older musicians who have been playing bluegrass music their entire life but we're growing up in the kind of suburbs of Chicago and we're learning the music they you know the the I the song the sound of the banjo through um uh uh through television and film soundtracks really caught their ear and so some of them went to uptown because that's where there were southerners playing banjo on the street or in bars and they went and go went and found those people just to go hang out with them and to kind of learn from them sometimes it was for like it wasn't necessarily just for like teaching that chord it was sometimes it was just I want to be like wow you're very different than my dad's friends uh i want to hang out with you and find out what what is this whole world about it's pretty it's pretty exciting um and so there was a lot of that going on the the other well one of the great stories in the book um there's a fantastic mandolin player in chicago called don sternberg and i encourage anyone listening to go search him up he performs quite often. He's a master at his musician at his instrument. And um, he's also really funny. And Don was a teenager growing up, I believe in Wakanda, Illinois. And he um, really uh, loved, um, at the time, uh, Homer and Jethro. And Homer and Jethro were kind of a comedy country group. Uh, Jethro Burns played mandolin and um but these guys were global stars they played they were on the tonight show they played for u.s presidents they played europe hank williams last night on earth they were on the bill with hank williams although he didn't show up and um and by 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 the time that don was uh in a a teenager um uh Homer had died and Jethro had moved to Chicago because he had married a woman here and was living in Evanston and his mother had heard that and said why don't you take some class you know you, you seem bored why don't you go learn from this I heard that this guy Jethro Burns is in town and uh Don uh couldn't believe that Jethro Burns this major star was living in like not far from him and so <clears throat> He started taking lessons from Jethro Burns in his basement. And eventually a lot of kids his age started taking lessons from Jethro Burns in his basement. And it was like this god had kind of all of a sudden dropped in their laps. And through one person, Jethro Burns, he influenced an entire generation of Chicago bluegrass people who are still playing today because he taught them all um in his in his basement and um and then eventually um in the 70s um Jethro started performing with these people he had a kind of a second life the last 10 years of his life I think he died of pancreatic cancer he started he started performing again the first time he'd ever performed outside of his former musical partner and and he had this kind of revival of interest in him and uh toured and recorded prolific you know had a prolific recording career just in those 10 years and and i think that sort of like a uh, real excitement about the music is a really beautiful thing but i think what caps it really is that it was the um coming together of these two very different generations and again, I think about like, yeah, you do see that sort of mentorship in the classical music world. And you, you know, you do see that kind of thing. It's more formalized. This was not that formalized. This was just somebody saying, I want to meet this person and I want to just see what they can. I just I I love this music. And and then kind of the love went back uh from him. And and I think that is something that I can't really see something in today's world that really I think generations are so split apart by media and and people don't really kind of connect in that way in that really organic way anymore. And so that those stories, to me, are the most touching in the book.
0: I absolutely agree. And you know, it's great to hear you bring up the the Folk Festival at the University of Chicago because, Besides country music, Chicago also has a rich folk music tradition as well. And there's two clubs I want to talk about: one still in operation, but one no longer. And it's the the Gate of Horn, which you uh, say, uh, which was an influential folk folk club that you write that the coastal elite scenes like Greenwich Village started to take notice. And you say about the Gate of Horn that while the club did not explicitly intend to integrate, its programming was often pioneering, and that that was really striking to read. So could you tell us more about the story behind the Gate of Horn and who could you see perform there?
1: Absolutely. So the Gate of Horn was very significant, uh, more significant than any club on the co- either coast, because it was the first nightclub to have folk music. Folk music did not, you know, in Greenwich Village, there were not nightclubs for folk music. So there's a distinction, you know, so like little bars um, or coffee shops or, you know, kind of more bohemian places, that's where the music lived. And that's kind of really what um, Greenwich Village was. Um, So nightclubs were kind of more adult places. Uh, It's where people kind of dressed up. They went out for, you know, drinks after work. People went for dates and they went to go here. So it was similar to it. It was more or less like a jazz club. And the Gate of Corn was located near jazz clubs. Chicago had this great flourishing you know, nightclub scene at that time in the 1950s, where all that every jazz grade you could think and comedian of the time was playing. And that was kind of part of that um, like revitalization of Chicago's downtown. Now you have all these people living downtown, working downtown skyscrapers, and now you have all this entertainment downtown where they can go and have big steaks and cocktails and and go and go here, uh, you know, go see Joan Rivers, that kind of thing. So the Gate of Horn was a club that was built in that kind of in that context. And it was a basement club in the basement of a place called the Rice Hotel. And the origin really was—I mean, I think it's—it wouldn't have existed. Sort of a purely Chicago creation. Um, the person behind it was a fellow named um, Albert Grossman, who was a very young man at the time, but was a very big, burly young man. He looked about twenty years older than than what he was. He was very giant, and he was later called the Bear. And um, and he was a real ruthless businessman. He really saw that folk music was becoming an established entertainment and he just saw opportunity in it so he started this club nightclub um to sort of like um get it get it going and um because there was nothing like it you know artists could make a lot of money playing there and you just didn't play one night you played maybe two weeks and so um artists from both coasts would travel to chicago to audition for albert grossman who didn't really know anything about music but he knew about really what might appeal to audiences and so that club really really took off um and it employed a lot of people um people like you know everybody passed the gate of horn you know comedians like george carlin and lenny bruce and And then, you know, Spike Lee's brother, Bill Lee, or Spike Lee's, I'm sorry, father, Bill Lee, was a very prominent jazz bassist. And he was the house bassist for the Gate of Horn um, and and lived here for quite a while. Um, Every prominent folk performer on their way up, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, um, Peggy Seeger, Odetta recorded a live record at the Gate of Horn. Um, So a couple of live records kind of came out of that as well. Um, Albert Grossman only owned it for a couple of years, very briefly, and sold it. And the Gate, when, when you meet sort of some old timers in Chicago and they mention the Gate of Horn, they're probably referring to the Gate Horn, the name kept moving to different locations through different owners. But that original Gate of Horn was the one that had the most, um, had really had the most influence. And Albert Grossman went on, the reason he left was that he became. Um, he really established the um <clears throat> blueprint for the modern rock and roll manager and so he um rock and roll was really you know so he's the Gator Horn opened in 1956 I believe um and he was ahead of the curve of the rock and roll revolution to come in the 60s and he ended up he had created Peter Paul and Mary That was a group he put together, and that was incredibly successful. And he ended up managing people like Bob Dylan and The Doors and uh, uh, Janis Joplin, famously, and the band. Um, And so he went, you know, that was his next, you know, uh, phase of life of what she's probably most known for.
0: So the other folk music landmark in Chicago is the Old Town School of Folk Music which is not only the first folk music school in the US, but it's still the oldest in operation. And I will say probably the best venue in the city. <laughs> so earlier we were talking about how jams at people's houses were one way that you could see country music. And you write in your book that these living room sessions created the blueprint for the way classes are conducted are conducted at Old Town still even today. Uh, so could you tell us more about, about the school and that that tradition of those jams and how it still influences their mission?
1: Sure. So the folk, the Old Town School of Folk Music came out of what we call the folk revival. And that's kind of, I've been describing it more or less in the 50s. There was just a revival of interest in um, music that had been recorded decades earlier. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and really driven by young people <clears throat> who were very excited by it. Um, and we're kind of rejecting rock and roll. That's sort of a generalization, but that's more or less really the kind of the overview of it. Um, and um, the Old Town came together because of the three founders had met at the Gate of Horn. And again, you know, you think about clubs as um, businesses, but clubs are also kind of incubators for music as well and places for people to hang out and meet and create something new. And that's definitely the case with the Gate of Horn and the founders of the Old Town School, they, they met there and they one was the house guitarist of the old town school another was just a fan in the audience and the third was win strackey who had a long career before this moment as a singer in chicago and and an early television performer and um and he he was an established um name in chicago and so they decided to kind of start um doing these classes in uh the fans house this woman named Dawn Greening who lived in Oak Park Illinois and um in her living room and eventually Wind found a space in a second floor of a Union building um on North Avenue in Old Town and so it really moved quickly and um it opened in 1957 um really a year after the gate of Horn opened and the idea behind it is what your question was about um, was something that, you know, so it wasn't just, you know, there's a million schools where we can learn music and learn how to, you know, learn chords and songs and that kind of thing. <clears throat> the Old Town School was very different in that it was because it was connected to the folk revival. The folk revival was really the idea that, um, life was changing very fast in the 1950s that um people were very afraid that they were going to lose something very tangible to human connection and what that human connection really was was the voice and singing and just the idea of being connected because what was happening in the 1950s is that modern life was actually disconnecting us from one another through television, through living far away from each other, um, in, in uh, suburban communities and, um, you know, music that seemed really kind of, you know, a little too raucous was uh, maybe something that was splitting up communities and that kind of thing. So, um, The style, what they taught at the Old Town School was the importance of not just learning um, the chords, but learning through just the songs and through singing together, through group classes. Up to that point, if you wanted to learn a guitar um, or any sort of instrument, you went to a conservatory and you sat in a room with somebody who was a master and, and they went back and forth and they taught you. This was a group this was learning through a group. And so you're in a big room and you're with a bunch of people There's somebody in the center, they're singing to, they're teaching you a song and now you're all singing together. And by the end of that class, you're all connected by your voice. And so yes, you're learning the chords of the songs, but you're also kind of learning how to kind of connect with the people around you. And that was really kind of the core of the, the folk revival. It was about community. Uh, it was about music, but it was about building communities through music. And, um, and that was very unique for, um, that, that, that was, that's really the, that's the separator from, um, from any other kind of music school that started before started since.
0: Thanks so much for covering that folk history with me, because, you know, the fact that it's still very much thriving is, is important and, um, I really liked hearing those stories but i do want to jump ahead a few more decades uh, to talk about chicago's role in alternative country during the 80s and 90s and you write in your book that if the beginning of alternative country in chicago could be traced to a single place it would be an unlikely one and it's a place called club lower links could you tell us more about alternative country and its origins at club lower links
1: So this is the kind of area that I kind of sort of entered in uh, and I knew a little bit, a little bit more because I was kind of there a little further past club lower links. Um, So, you know, today we, we hear of Americana music. It's everywhere. There's bluegrass bands. There's, you know, there's people playing, um, there's singer-songwriters everywhere. In the late 1980s and and early 90s, that wasn't really the case. It was very difficult to find, (laughs) if you were interested in country music, to go find it um country music on the charts had changed quite a lot it was more or less becoming pop music and if you were interested in older country music you were really you were out of luck more or less you had to go to the library and go find those recordings um and so people who were playing that music really there were no clubs to play those music as well i mean I, you know at all a club's not going to book you to go play old carter family songs there are punk rock clubs around and um their uh, art galleries were maybe more receptive and so club of lower links was a woman-owned club and had art happenings there uh artists from the school of the art institute they had um you know all sorts of you know they were they had open ears and the the owner really loved country music and so she there was a group in the downtown loop called the sundowners three men who played um uh, country music five nights a week to tourists she would book them in uh club lower links sometimes and so here they were playing to like punk rock weirdos you know with um you know performance artists and so kind of going back to what I was mentioning earlier this like weird culture of gen- cult clash of generations that was happening in uh, club lower links and um so you, it was an alternative space, really, what we would call today an alternative space for the music. And, and they really kind of held it down for a while. Um, alternative Country really kind of grew out of that um, because it really was an alternative music. It was an underground music. And as we get into the 1990s... Um, it was music that was not played on the radio and but it was being played in places like rock clubs like lounge acts, which which was very important kind of headquarters for the music. And um what was really interesting to me was that at the time, um alternative music was being called like commercial rock bands like The Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair and all these very famous bands that were coming out of that alternative revolution in the nineties. But the real alternative in Chicago was this kind of like incredibly healthy community that was bubbling up from the bottom um, of all these bands that were kind of reconnecting to country music because the themes of country music um, really were very working class. And, and that really resonated to kind of working class kids who, who kind of grew up on like FM rock in the 1970s. Um, And so they were, to them, this music was completely brand new, but they thought it, they really felt more attuned to it because of the themes of the music really um, resonated with them and their audiences. And so um, that was happening all below, you know, really below the surface, but it was such, but there were so many bands here and record labels and an audience here for it that within about five years, you know, it really did spread everywhere else. And my book does a pretty good job of kind of going, showing how Chicago was ahead of the curve by about 10 years of, of everyone else. And, um, and it really did kind of influence what today is known as Americana music and is much more, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a little less rough around the edges than that music I'm talking about in the nineties, but, um, a lot of the legacy artists that kind of came out of that period or a lot of the artists that came out of that period now are kind of legacy artists today of the genre.
0: One of the pioneering record labels in the genre was Bloodshot is Bloodshot Records and for those who don't know, they specialize in alternative country and you say they defined a movement represented by bands that place a high value on songwriting, irreverent attitudes and exciting live shows. And um, I want to know if you could tell us a little bit about more of the impact that their mission as a label has had.
1: The impact of that label is really immeasurable. It kind of goes back to what I was saying in that, like they, they identified a sound. So they did something that uh, in a way kind of going, full circle talking about bradley kincaid in the beginning of our conversation someone who identified like there was a really like wanted to document these songs bloodshot wanted to document what they were seeing happening organically in chicago and so they identified it and they called it something I mean, they did call it um insurgent country and um and that helped really an audience see it as well and They started going to South by Southwest and having these parties and South by Southwest is this major industry music industry conference, but they would have parties that were kind of off the like that were unofficial parties um, uh, of the conference in the back of art galleries and showcasing their bands and those parties were more popular. Than what was going on at the conference over a couple of years, if you really want to know where it was going, you went to you went to the Bloodshot parties, um, and so Bloodshot really identified a sound that was exciting, that was new, that had these incredible artists that were like mind blowing artists that were that were just coming up, and so they captured it and um and then but they couldn't hold on to it for too long because uh there was a lot of money to be made a lot of other record labels started with bigger budgets started and and stole away a lot of those artists um and a lot of those artists kind of became um again kind of legacy artists of today so they were really the first one to not just kind of demean the music but said no that's country music that you they may not look like you know a country band or a country artist on country radio today but those are legitimate country artists and they need to be reckoned with and they they were really the first ones to do that
0: you know it's amazing how we're still having this identity talk about what exactly is country music as you know the changes that are going through the industry while also them still kind of like consolidating themselves uh in this particular image is, is really kind of fascinating um and so it's it's important that we have labels like bloodshot continuing today you know to uh continuously t- redefine it um there's one more venue i want to ask about and you mentioned lounge acts um which after they closed during the mid 90s there was a n- need for a new club and that would end up being the hideout which is still open today could you tell us about how the hideout has carried chicago's uh country and folk traditions into the 21st century
1: sure um, so the owners of the hideout, there's four of them, and they kind of came out of that scene in the nineties. So they understood so that it wasn't alien to them. They they saw themselves literally as sort of this transitioning of creating sort of a safe space for what Longex kind of had created. And um the um when all of that stuff was really exploding, a lot of it happened naturally at the hideout because um they wanted to book those bands. They had festivals outside of the building. They, um, it became a place where other musicians went to watch other musicians. So a lot of collaborations kind of organically happened out of it, but what the hideout really understood, um, that, uh, that makes them very different than a lot of other clubs before them and after them is that they, they, they very much understood their role in sort of the kind of Chicago saloon tradition and that we're just not here to go throw musicians on a stage. There needs to be a reason for it that we're actually kind of, or we're going to give space to people that we think are really important, we think deserve to have an audience. That there's profit-making is not just the bottom line goal of of the hideout um if a profit's being made that's great but also but it's really more about kind of showcasing artists and in a way that's kind of like they're kind of this like they're they're sort of this like realm between um uh an art gallery and and a and a a business and a and a bar business in that they are really trying to sort of um really make a statement with what's on what's on their stage and not just basically throw whoever cover bands or whatever up on their stage that they're trying to make it much more intentional and that really even though it sounds very naive that's very very important for any sort of scene to grow and to nurture because you need gatekeepers like that who really kind of create these spaces that um where artists feel very free to experiment without being thrown off stage and and um and that's why a lot of artists kind of feel like that's kind of been their hometown club because they're allowed to do that and 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 there's not a lot of places um that really offer that creative freedom
0: and i think that's incredibly important and i I don't see it as naive at, at all because we do need those communities as they you know continue sure. to get smaller due to algorithms and how people consume media these days. And so, um, you know, with that, go support your local clubs. <laughs> um, so um, I just had a couple more questions to, to, to go through here. Now we've covered the history and I, and really, really thank you for that. Um, what do you see for the future of country and folk music in Chicago?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> it seems pretty, it seems right now there's a great, there's a real healthy singer song writer scene going on now. And that, Really, there hadn't been one for quite a long time. And so there's Songwriter Nights. There's some really very good songwriters out playing. Um, And so that's very, very healthy. I mean, Chicago is not an industry town, but the industry's gone away in many ways. And so the music industry is more irrelevant than it's ever been. Artists are self-releasing their stuff or doing interesting partnerships. And so the idea of going to get, you know, a, a record deal with Sony Records it's kind of gone away, and so it actually makes living in a place like Chicago much more um, desirable because you don't necessarily need that machinery as much anymore. So I'm seeing that there's this great singer songwriter scene. There's a there's a real flourishing. Um, Kind of country dance scene um, a lot of bands that kind of um, get up there and do um, kind of classic covers whether they're doing in sort of a square dance setting or just kind of like a honky-tonk setting a and band there's a lot of those bands um, and so there's certainly um, not uh, lacking there's really nothing lacking I would like to see more um, you know I there's a lot of covers going on. It would be great to see more original artists doing original songs in that realm. And I think the one thing about the alternative country scene in the nineties, which was great, was that the emphasis really was on original music. Um, There were bands that dressed up in Western shirts and wore cowboy hats and played a lot of old songs and for sure. But over time, those bands really dropped off and faded away the bands the artists that really survived out of that movement were the ones that developed their own voice and um and that's what made that scene great um today there are definitely as i mentioned there's some really great singer songwriters it would be really great to see more of like original voices within that realm um but if you want to go and um you know if you want to go dance and go hear a lot of great covers there's you can almost go seven nights a week. There's those bands are out there and getting a ton of work.
0: And besides just the bands and and the and the music venues and the record labels, there's other like really interesting ways in which we could, we're seeing that uh, country and folk scene in Chicago. I really love seeing the uh, square dancers in the pride parade. You know, going down the street and uh, dancing to like Whitney Houston. It's really fantastic, and it shows that you know there's an inclusivity element there to a genre that i think has been largely misunderstood by those who don't particularly listen to it and so seeing that kind of cultural osmosis in a way blending with other communities i think really speaks to how we can see those music scenes uh thrive and expand in different ways
1: yeah 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 no i i I hear what you're saying and that's for sure that's definitely going that that's 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 um um you know the diversity of who's playing the music is definitely out there that that's reflective of sort of the just national trend you know i mean really as i mentioned kind of americana music is sort of this thing that's the label that's being uh that's the genre label i think now that's being used um outside of just kind of commercial country music and it's on commercial radio um that's really everywhere. That's a, that's a mainstream music now. And, uh, and I find that so interesting that, but at the same time, you know, I always warn that sometimes that, you know, the music could get um, a little boring once it becomes so big and it becomes such everyone's doing it and everyone wants to dress up like their Kitty Wells and Hank Williams in 1950, um, that the music could, um, you know, it, it, maybe it's time then for another alternative scene to kind of kick its butt because um, um, it could get just as kind of, you know, feel a little, feel a little, um, you know, uh, routine after a while.
0: So with that in mind, if someone were to start exploring Chicago country and folk, and where would you recommend they begin?
1: Well, you know, we talked about the hideout, that's a great place and they have a great event every year called a day in our country, which has like a long day festival that has a lot of these bands, but those bands play there all the time, Um, go to a place like Fitzgerald's that's a really good place for a lot of singer songwriters, they have three different spaces, um, and so there's so much music going through that place, seven nights a week. there's a lot of alternative spaces just like i was talking about before there's a lot of like art galleries and small bars that will have music as well you know i think everything from like there's a little bar in rogers park called carrie's that has songwriters and country stuff all the time to a place all the way in south berwin called the outer space that has a lot of the music as well um, the old town school of folk music of course um, is still running um you can get all that stuff there martyrs um in on the north side is another really good club um yeah you know boy you, you can't you can't really escape it it's not it's not underground as it was anymore it's really kind of all over the place summer
0: so, so for my final question who are some of your favorite chicago country and folk artists
1: well it's a tough question to say ask because you know some of the ones i like are just kind of legacy artists but then there's some it's kind of all across the board, but I can, you know, the person who wrote the, um, the forward to my book is probably right up there. Robbie Falks, who he really represents almost the entire book to me. I mean, his story, his approach to country music um, really, really appealed to me that he was this incredibly, probably the most original voice Um, that I'd come across um, as a songwriter and as a personality and as a musician. He's very, it's tough to match him. He's really great. And now he's a legacy bluegrass artist. I mean, he's an incredible musician, plays, you know, all around the country. And so he's right up there. I mean, of course, John Langford, really, I get into the book very extensively about him. This kind of scene kind of swirled around him because he became this connector of bringing people together and forming a million different bands, um, very, which was very important back in the nineties, um, that he was somebody who brought people together. But I think sometimes people forget what a great songwriter he is. He's, he's a, he, his song, his songbook. you can remove John from a songbook; book. Those songs are really amazing songs. Um, you know, um, the, let's see, Boy, there's people like Nora o'connor who i think is a really great songwriter and she was in a band that was very important called the blacks with danny black um who's starting to write songs again and he's kind of coming around so Nora and danny i think are um uh, pretty pretty unmatched uh for what they've done and um uh another person i really I hold in very high regard is Steve Dawson. Um, Steve formed a band called Dolly Varden in the '90s, and now has done a lot of solo records, a lot of collaborations with a lot of avant-garde jazz musicians in Chicago. He's an incredible singer and guitarist, but he is a songwriter. He's um, very, his, his, his stuff is very deep and poetic. And he's a longtime teacher at the Old Town School, too. So I think he represents that sort of giving back and sharing um, over generations, too. So he's someone who's been around, boy, 30 plus years, um, who I hold in, in, in very, very high regard, Steve Dawson.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I did too. <laughs> yeah, I this this was. I think this is an essential book, and I think you should really be incredibly proud because um, this was really eye opening. And I know it should have been obvious to to me, like, oh, because we have we still have like the remnants of this of these scenes now. But um, uh, this is really a really truly great book.
1: Oh, that's so nice to hear for you. You know, that's just nice to hear. And you're too generous. Thanks so much. That It was really fun. These are great questions, too. So thank you.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest, Mark Garino. His latest book is Country and Midwestern, Chicago and the History of Country Music and the Folk Revival, and is published by University of Chicago Press.